Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. We are so excited to be joining you for your Come Follow Me as we study Second Nephi. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson. And I'm Jack Welch. We're in chapters 20 to 25 today. So we have four short chapters in Isaiah and then a very long chapter on Nephi's commentary on what he just said and why he said it and what it means to him. It's a fabulous little group of scriptures and I absolutely think that you will come away with a greater love not only of Nephi but also of Isaiah from today's looking at these chapters. People for centuries have tried to understand Isaiah. It's kind of mystifying to most and I think that actually people had grown weary of trying to understand Isaiah by the time of uh, Joseph Smith in the 19th century. We don't see a lot of Isaiah commentary. They're more New Testament focused in the 19th century Americana. And so it's really amazing. It's miraculous and inspiring that we have Nephi, who after all knew Jerusalem. He knew what he was talking about, and he can interpret and read this for us. Nephi is the best guide I can ever imagine for understanding Isaiah. So, except for you, Lynn. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Um, we talked last week about, before you jump into Isaiah, make sure you have charts and maps and a few things that might help you know where we're talking about. Remember, he's a prophet when the northern tribes are taken captive. He's over five different kings. The southern tribes are miraculously saved from Assyria. That's the big enemy, and we'll come across Assyria many times in our reading today. What do we know about Assyria? Were these guys... Uh... Just friendly merchants? <laughs> Sennacherib showed otherwise in his attack in 721 BC. Yeah, there's never been a more brutal civilization. You can hardly call it civilized. Uh, we have uh, a body of laws called the Middle Assyrian Laws, and the punishments are... Torturous. Yeah, it's just awful. Yeah, it's not just ending your life. It's torture. And we, we get the impression that even within Assyria, the kings ruled with an iron fist. And when they took a captive, they weren't very kind, to say the least. Uh, captives were strung out along the road, hung on trees like crucifixion, torture. They were strung up alive. And the northern tribes have been taken captive during part of the time that Isaiah is writing. These are the people who will come and take uh, eventually, it's the end of Isaiah's life that these warnings will actually materialize. But when he's talking about Assyria, people know that this culture is violently opposed to the law of Moses, to the God of Israel, to the, the purposes of righteousness and salvation. Although for a short period of time before Isaiah's day, they did repent because that's Jonah's mission. And he goes to, for a brief period of time, and then they become wicked again. We, we don't know much about that, do we? No, we don't. But we do understand, when you know a little about the background, why Jonah would have said, I'm not going there. <laughs> you want me to go to Nineveh? <laughs> Anywhere but Nineveh. <laughs> you know, and when we read about this, this is the same time as Jonah you know, the rise of the Assyrian Empire and Jonah being asked to go. And it's amazing that he does actually get an audience there. 
when he eventually goes. And they repent, it says. Sackcloth and ashes. But it doesn't seem to stick. But let's dive into the text. Chapter 20 begins with this beautiful analogy that we just finished with last time about the Lord's hand being stretched out still. Verse 4, for all this, his anger is not turned away. I, I feel like even though this is a hand of justice, it is still a hand of mercy because God's justice is filled with love. Moses chapter 1, verse 39. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. And it's nice when we see in Scripture uh, God speaking in the first person. Oh. My work and my glory. Yes. Let me, let me just explain one thing that might be useful. If you don't already have the Scripture Plus app, uh, which we've put together, and we're adding to this constantly— it's getting better and better, but we've been working on this now for four years, and it's really quite good. But if you go to 2 Nephi 20 in the Scripture Plus app, and there's a way to navigate to just get to the Scriptures themselves. There's lots of other uh, resources and things there. But we have the uh, texts in red lettering when they are the words of the Lord. So here in chapter 20, the red lettering begins in verse 1. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness, which they have prescribed, to turn away the needy. Who's talking here? We've put this in red because... You think it's the Lord, it's not Isaiah. It's the Lord because, well, he says, to take away the right from the poor of my people, that they may rob the fatherless. Verse 4, without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners, the Assyrians, and they shall fall under the slain. Now, it's a great resource. So it helps us all to let things sink in twice, and even more emphatically when we say, this is the Lord speaking. Also, the word Lord is highlighted whenever names of Jesus, and it's Jehovah, Jesus who appears a lot in these passages. So there's more to be gained by listening to come and listen to the Lord. And his, his voice is given here by Isaiah, much as Joseph Smith will also give the words of the Lord. Chapter 20 also continues on after the destruction of the Assyrians and their awful, um, torturous taking over. In verse 20, it says... The remnant of Israel and such as escaped from the house of Jacob will come back. They will stay upon the Lord. So there will be some who are true to the Holy One of Israel. And then in 21, the remnant shall return. And in verse 22, the remnant of them shall return. There's always this hope. And I think this was so important for Nephi because he had just watched the destruction of the southern tribes to Babylon. So even though Isaiah is referring to the northern tribes' um, departure, Nephi and Lehi were watching the southern tribes, and now he is being able to recite these prophecies that, don't worry, the Lord is going to make everything right in the end. And we're living in that right now. This is part of the restoration. The remnant will return is the gathering of Israel. And here, the return of the remnant probably refers to they will come back from Babylon. Yes, they do. And they will do that. Uh, 
so that the Lord can come, so that Jesus can be born among them as prophesied by Isaiah. Has been prophecy, a virgin shall conceive, and uh, as Isaiah has mentioned previously. So there's that gathering. But when we get over to chapter 21, uh, if you... uh, if you go there to verse 11, you can see that Isaiah refers to another gathering. Verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. The second time is us. That's right. That's our gathering. So there are two gatherings. One that came about after Babylon and another that will come in the last days. And I believe that is the most important work we are to be doing right now, gathering Israel on either side of the veil as we all come unto Christ. Of course, the most important is to come unto Christ. But yeah. So chapter 21 is Isaiah chapter 11. And just stepping back and looking at it as a whole, it's divided into five sections. We've talked about this prophet who's the stem of Jesse coming out of the roots of Jesse. And then we've got, starting in about verse 6, the millennium. Verse 9, we have um, the temple imagery again. And then, as you mentioned in verse 11, the restoration and the gathering forth in the latter days. So as we start in the beginning, it's rather confusing who we're talking about and what is a root and what is a stem. And these are not words that we use every day in our gardening. So I just want to go back to chapter 21, verse 1. And there shall come forth from the rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Joseph asked about these verses and was given section 113, the answer. Section 113, verse 4 says, Behold, thus saith the Lord, It is a servant in the hands of Christ who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as Ephraim or of the house of Joseph on whom there is laid much power. So we've got someone in the restoration, someone who's going to come and do this important work who's partially from Jesse, which means he's from Judah. And if he's from Joseph or Ephraim, it's northern tribes and southern tribes Inter, intermarrying, but we're thousands and thousands of years after there was ever this separation. That's right. Separation. But but that's brilliant because what it's talking about is the reuniting of all of the house of Israel. Yes. It's no longer the divided kingdoms. Oh, yes. And that's why this person is described. Do you think it's literal as well that he literally came from these tribes? Well, I think it's talking about the root and the branch. So whoever this prophet is, He may even have this in his genealogy. And the reason why I say that is because when Joseph was translating this, he wrote on the side um, that this may refer to him. Yes, He said, I I didn't know I had any Judaic blood in me kind of questions. You know, no man knows my history. It comes from this this verse. But it's very helpful as we continue reading about this prophet to talk about the root of Jesse. Also in verse 10, um, there shall be a root. So we've got the stem of Jesse a rod out of that stem, and now we have a root. And they're all described by Joseph. But I love verse 2 that describes more about this prophet. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Yeah, just reading the Isaiah passage, things can be a little bit obscure. 
But because we have Section 113, we can tell that this is one great big plant. It almost reminds you of the allegory of the olive tree. And remember that branches are grafted into the olive tree so that it's not talking about just a single genetic root. And so you might have in any one of these people a mixture and a totality of the house of Israel. And so we can see that, that the stem, meaning the trunk, is Jesus Christ. He's coming out of Jesse. He's coming out of David's lineage. So our Savior, Jesus, is born from David's. That's right. Then there will be another one that will be a branch. Which is here called a rod in this in King James language, but it's a branch. It's a branch. And the branch that's, or the rod is Joseph Smith. Of course, the word rod uh, can refer to the rod that we hold on to that leads us to the tree. Ah, interesting. And can also mean the Word, the Word of God. So there are these symbolic things that are coming together around this wonderful image of a living plant that will produce wonderful fruit that the Master wants to care for and eventually harvest. There's one other thing that's mentioned in section 113, and that is that this plant will also have a root. Yes, that's coming out of Isaiah or um, 11, verse 10, or chapter 21 in 2 Nephi, verse 10. Yeah. And we don't know what the root might refer to. He says it's again going to be someone who comes from these different tribes, that we have a combination of Ephraim and Judah again. And I think the important thing for us here is to see that it's the totality the root and branch, everything will be then healed and brought together in the millennial final triumph, the day of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, he then goes and talks about the millennium. This is where we get those verses about the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. And I used to always think of it literally, and I do believe it's literal, but I also love the Septuagint's translation here. The lion, we're told in the patriarchal blessing from Jacob to Judah— is Judah's symbol. Judah is the lion of the Lord. And so for the lion to lie down with the lamb, I see this beautiful symbol of the Jews will accept the lamb of God. That is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's verse um, six. Yeah, verse six. And the lion, the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. He's talking about the no harm in that day and age. It's going to be wonderful. We just have to go through a few more hardships before we can get there. The bride has to be ready. That Once the church is ready, these things will come to pass. Yeah, that's brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to look at Isaiah both literally and symbolically. Let me mention one thing that just occurred to me. If you go visit the Knesset building in Jerusalem— this is where the Israeli government meets. All over that building, you find Chagall mosaics, and they are, they're beautiful. And what do they depict? These verses, the lamb and the lion lying down together, looking forward to the coming of the Lord and the eventual peace that we yearn for, not just in Israel, but in the whole world, but especially these days, in Israel. But peace will come through accepting our Savior and making covenants and coming unto Christ. Yeah. You know, last week we mentioned that Isaiah was a great poet, a wordsmith. A Shakespeare of the ancient world. But here's a great example. 
Why don't you read this to us? Starting in verse 3. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. You talked about his imagery and the way he paints pictures. And we're drawing water out of the wells of salvation in a land where water was everything, where, where survival was depending on water. And so the salvation is not just your thirst of that day and your family for that week, but um, it's our Christ forever. And then here comes these beautiful parallels in verse 4. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among his people, make mention of his name is exalted. And then in a repeat of this idea, sing unto the Lord, he that hath done excellent things. And then finally, verse 6, Cry out and shout, thou inhabitants of Zion. You know, he's asking us to pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, he's asking us to praise the Lord because we've seen the great works of Jehovah. And his name is actually spelled out in verse 2 here. The Lord Jehovah in Isaiah. Do you see this not just as a wonderful poem, but a, a little bit of a handbook or what we should be doing, say, in our... Worship service, in our prayers, in our... Or our family home evenings, or things like that. Look at the points he mentions. We praise the Lord. What does it mean to praise? Uh, does God just want us to say, oh, you're so wonderful? Praise and thank are the same word in the ancient languages. So when you praise someone, you thank them. I don't think God needs his ego built by us, so... Well, and by thanking and praising the Lord, we we understand our relationship to Him. Yes, and we need to thank Him in all things. And then second, we call upon His name. Mm. If we do, if we remember His name always and call upon it. And there is power in His name. And why is that? If you know His name and you pray in His name, knowing someone's name gives you a personal connection with that person. And if you know the Lord's name and the names by which we are called and how to approach him, you can then with confidence call upon him as our friend and someone who has invited us to do that. Declare his doings among the people. What does that mean? What does he want us to do? Preach the gospel. Spread the news. Testify of him as a God of miracles. Testify of him as the source of truth. Testify of him as the source of joy. And his doings. Yeah, I think what I like about this is he wants to be remembered not for abstract things. But his doings. For what he has done. What he did in, to Moses, the children of Israel. What he did. What he did in creating the world. When you remember the great things that the Lord has done for us, that's how Moroni begins the promise that if you will then ask in his name, he will reveal the truth of these things to you. That's in Moroni chapter 10. Make mention that his name is exalted. So we need to mention his name with reverence and remind people that this is a holy name. Sing unto the Lord. What a great tradition we have in the restored gospel of singing. And with the choirs, ward choir, family choir. But we want to sing unto him, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. Inhabitant. Uh, the people who inhabit 
are the people who are citizens, uh, those who inhabit Zion belong as a people. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So here in this little poem. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Maybe put it on the wall and... And remember it. Chapter 23, unfortunately, goes back to the destruction. And we now get not the destruction of the Assyrians, but the, destruct the destruction of the Babylonians. That's not going to happen for another 150 years or whatever after this was prophesied. And the Babylonians, where you have what we call the Neo-Babylonian rise, Nebuchadnezzar and others, uh, they're the ones who will then come eventually and complete the destruction of Jerusalem but before we see the destruction, he, he uses this beautiful temple imagery again. He goes back and forth to the hope of the time when we're living our covenants and we're living with God, and then the current events of the disasters. To me, it's a, it's a message of hope. But in verse 2, it says, lift up a banner upon the high mountain. So immediately I know we're talking about a temple text because he refers to mountains. And then he says, exalt the voice unto them. Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded and sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones. And then we get a change here. In Isaiah, he just says, um, mine anger at them, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of strange, for mine anger at them that rejoice in my highness. It, it doesn't quite fit. So in Second Nephi, we have, for mine anger is not upon them, that rejoice in my highness. This is one of those examples where I don't think Joseph and Oliver had enough time as they're writing so fast to say, oh, shouldn't we change this? I mean, this is such an example of the accuracy of the translation process. Almost, you know, I mentioned this before, 60% of the verses are changed and they are changed with such powerful influence messages. And this is one of them. Yeah. And as we've tried to replicate that process that Joseph went through with Oliver Cowdery, you become aware of how you don't even know what the next word is going to be. Unless you can, unless Joseph can see where that ends. As he's looking in the hat at the German thumb, he can only see a few words. So putting a knot in there, he, he might pause and say, what's coming next? So it's not one of these kinds of things that a translator reads and sees the whole process and then decides what the best translation is. This is a process where the words are coming by the gift and power of God. That's just beautiful. The rest of this wonderful chapter talks about the day of the Lord as well in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger. And he's, it, it says in Nephi's commentary in chapter 25 that he's using some of these examples of the destruction of Babylon and the destruction of Assyria earlier because it's going to be a type of the last days. And continuing on in the same chapter of chapter 23, he's talking about now what happens during all the proud being punished. That's verse 11. And then in verse 12, it says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold. And he gives an example of the most precious gold known in the ancient world. But the whole message for me of Liberty Jail is all these things will give thee experience and be for thy good. 
And so as we go through this refiner's fire, whether it's the Assyrian or the Babylonian or the latter days, the purification process is part of what is making us better. And as one who has dipped my toe into challenges, I am so grateful for my challenges. The purification process works. I am so glad I went through um, two years of chemo. I feel like I'm a different person because of it, not just because I have better health, but because I, my soul was cleansed. Before we leave chapter 23, okay. I want to go to chap- verse 22. We have another one of those additions that are in the Book of Mormon that were not in Isaiah originally. So the wild beasts in the islands, they're crying, they're desolate houses. He even uses the word dragons in the King James in their pleasant palaces. You know, everything's being destroyed. It's going wild. And it says halfway down in verse 22, and her time is near to come, and her day shall not be prolonged. And then we have an addition in the Book of Mormon. For I will destroy her speedily. Yea, for I will be merciful unto my people, but the wicked shall perish. Now, this, this hope, this constant drive of, I love you, I'm going to take care of you, hang in there. He, he's, our, he's encouraging. It's such a beautiful message. And notice that it says, the wicked shall perish. It doesn't say, I will destroy them. Of course. And these will be natural consequences of choices. It's not that God is going to inflict these punishments. We do it to ourselves. We are, we are accountable for what we do. And we can't say in the end that God is going to give me some severe punishment. These are natural consequences that follow from the choices that we make. And we see another great addition of the Book of Mormon that's not in the original Isaiah in chapter 24, verse 2, just a few sentences down. Um, he's talking about um, the people shall take them to bring them in their place. And then we add in, yea, from far to the ends of the earth, and they shall return to their lands of promise. I think this is so important to Nephi. I think it was so important to Isaiah. Isaiah is watching the destruction literally with the Assyrians and then through vision um, through the Babylonians. And the hope of return is so important. Let's move on to chapter 25. We finally get to Nephi's commentary. Chapter 25 is just an outstanding chapter. And it begins, of course, with uh, Nephi giving us five steps. These are keys that he says people should use to read Isaiah. Yeah. Now that we've finished it, we'll tell you how to read it. <laughs> well, we hope that we've been modeling what Nephi has been saying, and you've been following along and doing these kinds of things. But having the handbook now will make a lot of that clearer for us. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, he says, if you want to understand Isaiah— you have to understand the manner of prophesying among the Jews. Now, what do you think he means by that? Well, I'm sure he's, he wants us to realize that prophesying was an accepted and, and uh, important practice for them. But obviously, it's different than what he's teaching his children. They aren't looking at it in the same allegorical or whatever. It, it's different. You, in order to understand it, you've got to understand the prophesying of the Jews. That's a good point. And then he goes on and says, I lived there, I got it, but you guys don't. So I'm going to tell you plainly what this stuff means. To pass that on. Yeah. So 
the importance of prophecy. Do you think we need to know the, understand the manner of prophesying today? Well, I think that's one of the gifts of the Spirit. And in fact, even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, John says, they who have a testimony of Jesus have the spirit of prophecy. And in verse, is it verse four, where, um, chapter 25 still, where he says, um, wherefore hearken, O my people, which are the house of Israel, give ear to my words. This is Nephi speaking. Um, For because the words of Isaiah are not plain to you, nevertheless, they are plain to all those who are filled with the spirit of prophecy. So that's uh, a second thing that Nephi tells us. You want to understand Isaiah, you have to find a way to be filled with the spirit of prophecy. And you don't don't preconceive what you think a prophet needs to be, Uh, especially when you're listening to a general conference. We don't listen for what we want to hear. We have itching ears and we're just waiting. And the same thing with our prayers. We have to listen to what God is saying, not what we want him to say. Yeah. Yeah. And be surprised, surprised by joy, C.S. Lewis said. A third thing that is mentioned in verse, back in verse two, is do not do works of darkness or doings of abominations. But I think if we do the works of darkness, uh, that means that our hearts are really set upon those things. And if we're striving to find ways in which to do evil, we're not going to understand what Isaiah is talking about. And, And the fourth one is what we've already talked about, be familiar with the regions around Jerusalem. So hopefully our maps and not only at Book of Mormon Central, but elsewhere, you'll be able to find some good ones. Yeah, and a little bit like we were saying about understanding the the culture, the world, that uh, and the, the different societies that were there, and how those influenced the uh, the choices and practices there. And then finally, Nephi says it really helps to live during the days that the prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled. Did, did Nephi live in the day when some of those prophecies were fulfilled? Well, the destruction of you Jerusalem. Bet. So Nephi saw some of those things. Uh, Nephi is saying, I have lived and I have seen prophecies of Isaiah come true. And because of that, I then know that the rest of these prophecies will also come to pass. And we too have seen enough of these prophecies of Isaiah come to pass. As we will see as we talk about chapter 29 next week, we know that in the Restoration, uh, through Joseph Smith, many of these prophecies have come to pass in ways that he could not have orchestrated. And if you think Isaiah is hard to understand, I don't think Joseph Smith had nearly the tools or the ability to sit and study these things. Like I said before, Isaiah was not a favorite book of commentary in Joseph's day. And and yet he sees these things fulfilled and knows even more that these things are of the Lord. Well, verse 8, Nephi even tells us, for I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. So he said, I'm including these things because I know you want them so much. For in that day shall they understand them. Wherefore, for their good, I have written them. So we avoid Isaiah and he says, I included them just for you. Okay, everybody. No excuse.
He spent all that time making the extra plates and writing them in. And he's putting those in. And I think he knows that because in his vision, when he went up on that mountain, when he was at his personal crossroad, am I going to follow Lehi or not? And he receives that vision. Remember chapter 14 in 1 Nephi, at the end of Nephi's great vision, he sees the, the final scenes of history. And he knows that from the revelation that was shown to him. And as a result, he can now appreciate the value that these will be to us. Because he saw our day. Yeah. And if we don't value them, maybe we ought to value them more. You know, go ahead and dig a little deeper. And in fact, I wanted to talk a little bit about this great book here. If you want to dig deeper, we have got some wonderful resources. And you can buy them. You can get them online. Um, do you want to talk about this one, Jack? This is one of your books. I would. Yeah. No, that's great. This is a paperback second printing of a book called Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. And it's... Uh, a collection of essays going through all of the Isaiah passages. We've only, of course, dealt with a few. There will be more to come. But this collection was put together some years ago in 1998, and it's available free on the uh, Scripture Central archive. It begins with a uh, wonderful chapter by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, more fully persuaded, Isaiah's witness of Christ's ministry. And in this essay, Elder Holland does not disappoint. He really feels and knows what he's talking about. And it's written here, we put it in as the introduction, because it's really the key that unlocks everything that's going on here. So as he begins talking about these Isaiah chapters, he focuses immediately on Christ. And I was touched that he even goes to the crucifixion of our Lord. Um, in verse 12, um, behold, they will have wars and rumors of wars. And then verse 13, they will crucify him. And after he's laid in the sepulcher, you know, Christ's passion, the three days and three nights is all described here. And he is getting this out of the Isaiah passages. He says, I'm going to give you now my own prophecy. But it comes not only from the vision you were just referencing that he received back in 1 Nephi chapter 14, but he gets this vision as part of his scripture study. He understands it more from Isaiah. And he sees the scattering of the nation, verse 16, after they've been scattered and the Lord hath scourged them by the other nations for the space of many generations. Then he gives this hopeful comment, until they have persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement, which is infinite for all mankind. I feel like Nephi's additions here clarify all these misunderstandings in early Puritan America. You know, by, by the 19th century, um, the majority of the religions believed in a Calvinistic thought. We're totally deprived. It's the elect that are saved. The atonement is limited. You know, there's perseverance only of the elect. And all of those points of their tulip doctrine are knocked down so that Joseph could learn, I think, as he's translating the Book of Mormon right here, 
that all can be saved. And Nephi quotes it over and over again in these verses. And you, you, see, you see that right in the word infinite atonement, right? I mean, yeah. that's uh, inconsistent with, or that's a formulation of that doctrine that is so expansive. And, of course, it's uh, reiterated not just by Jacob and Nephi, but also later by Alma. So we know this is something that the Nephite prophets took very seriously. Another thing the Nephites' prophets took seriously is verse 19. 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem. Now, that's already been prophesied back by his dad. Um, But now Nephi is stating it again in this book. But for some reason, later on in the history of the Nephite people, they don't know. They say, why isn't Jesus going to come here? Why isn't God going to come to our people? And if they knew their scriptures, they would have known he was, because Nephi prophesies of it right here, quoting not only his dad, but the spirit of prophecy that he said he was given. But that's, that's right. But the priests and the people who have the records are very good with calendars. And we know that the Nephites were meticulous in counting the years. Yeah. And why are they doing that? I think because of this prophecy. Yeah. They want to know exactly when he's coming. And, and that's why they know At the end of the book of Helaman, they know that the time is running out. And if it doesn't come, then prophets have failed. Yeah, and that's why Samuel the Lamanite comes. Yeah, Yeah, we'll get there in a few more months. Okay, but also in that verse, uh, in 18, for there is, save one Messiah spoken of by the prophets, and that Messiah is he who should be rejected by the Jews, Nephi says. Now, the word Mashiach, or Messiah, means the anointed one. There were lots of people who were anointed. And even things like the altar was anointed at the temple. It's holy, anything sacred. Yeah, and the king, King David, was anointed. But what he's saying here is there is really only one capital anointed one. The promised Messiah of Jesse. And they should not look for others. He's emphasizing that. That's beautiful. I'm also touched with the way he emphasizes the name of the Lord that you brought up earlier. Look at verse 19 at the very end. His name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then skipping over to the end of verse 20, there is none other name given under the heaven, save it be Jesus Christ, of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. You know, Nephi is writing as an Old Testament prophet using the New Testament words. Jesus is not Joshua. You know, he's using these words because he's seen him in the future. And remember, we were told um, last week, they, an angel told him his name will be Christ, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. And this name has power, and there is no other name given than Jesus. And that's why he talks so much about him. That's why verse 23 is so important to us. We labor diligently to write to persuade our children and diligently to write was a lot more than getting out a piece of paper and a pencil or typing on your computer. You know, they're having to make the metal and record all this down. But I love this. We take so much diligence to persuade our children and our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, to know that it is by his grace that we are saved after all we can do. And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we have to keep the law of Moses, but look forward steadfastly 
to this Christ. And then he says we're alive in Christ. And all of these beautiful verses are part of a little chiasmus. And it's a nice tight one. In order to draw special attention to this particular point that Nephi is making about the complete, uh, important, central focus on Jesus Christ, the Christ, Nephi has constructed here a very careful, chiastic, focusing passage. And which verses are they, Jack? So this is in 2 Nephi 25, verses 24 to 27. It begins by saying, And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses. And it ends, this little uh, chiasm ends at the end of verse 27. And they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away. So with that, with the, the bookends there, Let's look at what happens approaching the center and then retreating out of it. But even though we keep the law of Moses, he says, we look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we can keep the law because of the commandments. And then 26, must be the center? As you can see, once again, Nephi has taken the time and effort to be sure that we get the center point and the things that lead up to it and the reasons why they, at the middle, talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, prophesy of Christ, write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may receive a remission for their sins. So we have that at the the center. Before and after that, Nephi mentions that the law has become dead unto us and that we are made alive in Christ because of our faith and because we keep the commandments. Right after that one, following it, he talks about the deadness of the law. We have to know eventually that the law will not provide all that we need And by knowing the deadness of the law, we can look forward to the life in Christ, which is uh, contrasted with being made alive in Christ at the beginning. The point about for this end was the law given is echoed and that they may know for what end the law was given. So he's declaring that he knows why the law was given for this purpose, but If we will talk of Christ and prophesy of Christ, then we will know that too. You know, this verse was my my goal as a mom when I was raising my seven kids. This was my goal. I want to talk of Christ. I want to rejoice in Christ. I want to preach of Christ, you know. And um, if we can testify of Christ, then we are prophesying of Christ. so that we knew where to go for remission. We could say we're sorry, we have weaknesses, we need help. And we prophesy of Christ, not just in what's going to happen, you know, no, at the final judgment. No, it's your testimony now. We do yeah. prophesy of what that will be like when we face the final judgment. But we can also predict or prophesy what's going to happen if you keep the commandments. If you do this, the Lord will do these things. 
And we can prophesy as we speak forth. Prophesis can mean to speak ahead of, but also to speak out. And so prophesying has lots of words that, meanings that uh, work here. The, the one element that we haven't mentioned is B and B prime. And that is uh, that we look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. And even after the law is fulfilled, Nephi says, we will then be able to look forward to what will come next. So he's, he's got all the elements there. And that is Nephi's commentary, uh, just saying, as you read this Isaiah, don't you see Christ? And almost every chapter had beautiful prophecies of our Savior. And almost every chapter talked about ways that we could become more holy. And we only become holy after all that we can do through the redemption and atoning sacrifice of our Savior. I love the depth of our Savior in these chapters. And I really hope that as you study them, you can feel a magnetic pull to draw closer to our Savior. Lynn, I, th I think you are a wonderful model of what Nephi would hope everyone would get out of what he's done. Nephi's sacrifice that we might know of Christ. And the words of Isaiah talking about Jehovah, the great Jehovah, and the whole plan that brings us closer to God through these principles and these laws, how blessed we are. And I thank you for this wonderful session we've been able to have together. And, and let's thank Nephi and thank our Lord. And thank Isaiah. And Isaiah and Joseph. <laughs> and let's praise them too. Yes, and sing that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.